This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello there and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Ahead of a big weekend for the country. Hi, Murph and Ken. Hello. Hi, how are you? Hi, guys. I hate to be the bearer of bad news here. Or more accurately, the buster of one of the great myths in Irish life. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you just got to suck it up and tell the people what they don't want to hear. So here goes. The Hill 16 Terrace in Croke Park did not get its name because it was built in the rubble of the 1916 Rising. In fact, right up until 1931, it wasn't called Hill 16 at all because none of the materials used to build the terrace were taken from the ruins of Dublin from that. Is that, is that an actual week. thing? Was that like a, that, a claim? Oh, oh, sorry, I, I'm busting a myth that you didn't even... I didn't even, wasn't aware of that myth. <laughs> yeah, okay. What a when, ridiculous uh, myth. When Ireland played uh, England in the Six Nations in 2007 when Crow Park had been opened up, yeah. uh, in the, on the BBC coverage, uh, there was, I think it was Craig... Well, whoever it was, it was the BBC were saying it, that... Uh, Walking in front of Hill 16, this was built from the rubble of 1916. And those goalposts are actually fashioned from fragments of the true cross imported by St. <laughs> Brendan <laughs> in the 7th century from Palestine. Uh, yeah. What a ridiculous idea. Do I'm people believe that kind of stuff? Oh, yeah. People believe a lot of stupid things about 1916 in general, I have to say. I've been watching a lot of television recently on, and I have to say I'm shocked at the level of uh, belief in delusional what ideas. Sort of, what sort of delusional ideas? Well, you know, I mean, do you really want to, do you want to go there? Uh, well, how, how political are we getting here, Ken? Well, it's difficult not to get immediately very political. Go on, well, try us. Well, I'm going up to Belfast on Monday mm -hmm. to see... Are you? The, yeah, I am, yeah. Oh, see, the Northern Ireland game? See the Northern Ireland football team. Ooh. And... Uh, They're playing uh, Slovenia, aren't they? Thanks very much, uh, men and women of 1916, for arranging it that we now have two teams in this island rather than just the one. I mean, that would be an opinion of mine. I mean, uh, this, this split in the, in the football teams obviously only happened some time later, but really the partitionist split, in my opinion, was largely due to the uh, violent 
rebellion of 1916. If only everybody could have been a little bit more patient. You know that Damien Dempsey song? Oh, patience. Give me some of that sweet patience, Lord. If only things had been... Uh, so you're one of these people who subscribes to the view that ultimately there would have been a united Ireland free of any rule from Britain uh, not partitioned into North, North and South if the if those uh, rebels in 1916 hadn't thrown the toys out of the pram. I think there would have been a much better. I think there would have been a much better chance for it. All right, yeah. And what I, about those guys who uh, signed the uh, the Ulster Covenant in their own blood? They probably would have just they would have given up after a while, would they? Well, you don't know really, but it made it very easy for them, didn't it? The, the 1916 Rising. It suddenly, rather than them having to be the ones who were going to have to take up arms against the crown that they were supposed to be loyal to and serve, uh, they were suddenly able to point over and say, "See what we have to deal with here." You know what I mean? I just think it made, it made things a lot easier. I mean, it, it seems to me that the entire tradition of physical force republicanism has never had the imagination to understand the power of non-violent means. Uh, home rule was granted in 1911, though, and they just sat in it for three 1912, years. 1912, wasn't it? 1912. They sat in it for two years. Well, they sat in it for two years because the lords had voted it down for those two years. And then, then the First World War broke out and they said, not now. Not, not, not just now. Let's get this business cleared up. It'll all be over by Christmas. It seems to me, Ken. It seems to me that from this remove of one hundred years, you're putting a lot of faith in a lot of ifs, buts, and maybes. You what? know, what I are mean, you? <laughs> the, the history only went one way. You know, they, they, you, who are you, Glenn Beck? Well, I'm, listen, I'm just putting an opposing view here, Ken. Yeah. Right. The, the, it sounds to me like you have a very idealized version of how this would have played out, and I think it's at least as unlikely to have played out the way that you're saying it as it was the way that it eventually played out. I think that violence breeds violence. I think that there'd never been, you know, this this idea of partition is something which comes after 1916. I think that when you have a when you have a violent uprising, when you bring in, you know, this, yeah, we're, we're going to kill. We're going to kill for Ireland. That's what it really is. It's not we died for our country. It's we were prepared to go out there and kill for our for you know our idea of our country, which isn't really shared by a lot of our countrymen, how long are we going to stick with that flag that we have? By the way, what a joke that is! I mean, why not? Why do we cut off the last third of that flag? Because that has got nothing to do with the idea of Ireland that that these 1916 people had. Okay, we well, should have green and white halves. Uh, maybe, maybe, but isn't the flag a symbol of something that uh, may yet be? You know, that's the idea. The, the idea, the flag was created... Well, maybe, but the, no no thanks no thanks to, you know, the physical force tradition. Uh, but you're, lo- you're looking at an island that had two uh, armies of ever-increasing size from 1912 onwards. You're, you're saying that there was a, a possibility that, that something would have happened, that uh, history would have played out uh, in such a way that neither of those two giant forces would have ever taken up actual arms against anyone. Well, if 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 the if they had decided not to, you know, fire the first shot, if they decided not to not to go there. I mean, I'm saying they shouldn't have gone there. Violence was a bad step to take, an, ir- an irreversible step which which ruins everything. Once you've gone there, you can't take it back and you can't control the consequences of what happened. Where where what in the history of the British Empire did you see countries that did this? Uh, what about the entire process of decolonization that happened after World War Two? Oh yeah, but, so, but you're saying we'd have had to have waited until at least then. Well, I mean, if we had, if we had had to, if we had had to wait 
would it what well, what real difference would that would that have made ultimately it's not as though ireland was uh, you know the the boom the great boom years of the 20s 30s and 40s in ireland you know i mean when you when you look back at that time do you, do, you, do you, does it strike you as being a golden age uh, well, someone, if we were still a part of the British Empire, maybe how, someone, how many Irish people would have died in World War II, for instance? Well, there, there was plenty of Irish people who fought in World War II anyway, voluntarily, to get the job. Yeah, but how, how, how many more would, would we have lost uh, by, by, uh, by dint of the fact that we were still, were still a part of the British Empire, and, 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 and like an integral part of the British Empire in World War II if we hadn't? Just, I'm just saying, Ken. We are going to talk more in 1916 with Michael Foley. He's going to explain further why... The myth that Ken had never heard of was just a myth in the first place. Uh, he's also, he's written some great stuff as part of the Sunday Times recent pullout. And he obviously immersed himself in that period of Irish history when he wrote The Bloody Fields. You might have heard him, us talking to him about that book a couple of years back. A brilliant account of Bloody Sunday. Uh, I've got some very, very, very exciting podcast related news for you today though, folks. You'll never believe where we're going next month, Murph. Uh, Toulouse? Not Toulouse, here's a clue. Yeah, Whoa. yeah. Uh, it's, it's definitely France, oh. though, isn't it? It's Paris. No, there's another one. Ahead of Euro 2016, it's Lille. Oh, this is getting painful. I'll give you one more clue. Okay. Clue is in the lyrics there. Nuri? Oh, forget it, I'll dumb it down. New York was his town, and it always would be. Lopez wants it away. And it's a deep to left center. Andrew Jones on the run. This one has a chance. Home run by Piazza. And the Mets lead 3-2. Muhammad Ali in the red front. Joe Frazier in the green front. Almost ready for the fight of the century. Then to read on the forecourt. Right side from 20. Jumps. Yes. Willis has hit on his first two. Behind the bat. I know we're going to win. I have that attitude. I feel that way. And it's not overconfidence thing. It's football stance. Not easy. Onto it comes Houghton. And Houghton with the shots. And it's there. What splendid sparkling opportunism for the old left peg this time. Remember Stuttgart 88. It's Ray Houghton once again. It's Italy nil. It's Ireland 1. This is incredible. Yes, indeed, we are going to be on the next step of our never-ending world tour with our friends Marilingus. Next month, we're going to be in New York City. Now you have it, Murph. Yeah, sorry, you're bringing me down. That's why I was bringing me down. I thought it was kind of... Anyway, listen, it doesn't matter all. We're going to New York. We're broadcasting a week of shows with the NYC second captain ears from April 11th, including a live extravaganza from the beautiful Brass Monkey Bar. In the Meatpackers in Manhattan on Wednesday, April 13th. Ooh, I like that backing music, yeah. This is going to be an incredible night for us, folks. That's April 13th, the rooftop show with the High Line in the background and the Hudson in front of us. All of our crew is going to be there. We'll have some huge guests to keep the New York City posse happy too. We want you to be there, but tickets are extremely limited. So New York crew, listen up. If you and your friends want to come to our live extravaganza in your city, email New York at second... I even like the look of this email address. New York at secondcaptains.com. Can we keep this even after? Yeah, the New I'm going to say you, all of my business correspondence will be from that email address. So email New York at secondcaptains.com with your name and the number of tickets you're looking for, and we'll immediately put you in the draw for those tickets. We're really excited about this, about bringing the show to New York. So 
you really got to be there if you're around the area. Yeah, email. and it seems to me like we've had a lot of correspondence from New York people, oh, e- yeah. be it on Twitter or via email. So these are the people we want to see. I mean, l- let's just cancel all future plans here. Email. Let's make sure. It's April 13th, right on? Uh, that's a live show, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, you know, get it together. New York at secondcaptains.com. Did poor old Bill Buckner make an appearance in that? He did. Uh, I'd actually kind of forgotten that that was against them. He's like the Boston Red Sox yeah. villain, super villain. But that was against the New York Mets. Yeah, it was one of the all-time great mistakes in American sport. (laughs) And we now dredge it up uh, just just for an excuse. Well, it was a pretty good deal for the New York Mets. Yeah, it was pretty good, I suppose. Coincidentally, we're talking to a New York resident a bit later, Dave Hannigan, about Barack Obama's trip to Cuba. First U.S. president to visit there since 1928. He took in a baseball game while he was there, hanging out with the Cuban president, Raul Castro. This was seen as a very symbolic part of a... Very symbolic trip, given the big impact the Cubans have made traditionally in the sport in America. They produce more than 200 players for the major leagues. Problem is that this game slash PR event took place on Tuesday, just hours after the horrific attacks in Brussels. So while many of the rest of the world's leaders were talking solemnly about the attack on Western values, Obama is on TV chilling out at a baseball game, casual shirt, no tie, in, in full, you know, Barack Obama relaxed mode. There was a lot of joshing going on. He was joshing with his wife. He was joshing with Derek Jeter. A famous former Yankee, he was joshing with uh, Castro. So uh, this hasn't gone down well with some people. Obviously, the obvious ones being Ted Cruz, Donald Trump, and the like. Uh, but uh, what a surprise! Yeah, but it seems to be a lot of people are seeing it as a bit of a misstep that maybe he could have just given that baseball game a skip. So we'll chat to Dave Hannigan about that. Joining the studio now by the author of one of our favourite books in recent years, The Bloodied Field. Michael Folio, are you? Not too bad, Owen. How are you? I'm good. Are you looking forward to the weekend, to the, all the commemorations? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, it'll be good. I'll be, I'll be back home in, in McCroom, down in, down in Mid-Cork. So uh, uh, I'm, sure they'll, I'm sure they'll get the green flags out and, uh, and wave them merrily for, for Easter Sunday and Easter Monday, you know? Well, it's a funny one. A lot of us, uh, I'll speak for myself here, uh, I have been trying to reconnect with the whole... Easter Rising and everything in the last few weeks, you know, watching the documentaries and reading the pullouts and all that kind of stuff. Um, do you feel a lot more of a connection than you you might have felt given all the research you did into the bloodied field? Um, yeah, a bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I suppose when you're kind of when you kind of get into that era, and I suppose I was kind of the research for that book was three years or so. So you were kind of in you know you were kind of living in that era to some degree for a long stretch of that. Um, you certainly kind of have more of an understanding and suddenly you look at the people who were very prominent in the War of Independence and Bloody Sunday and, you know, you go to the Rising and then suddenly you see, oh yeah, these guys actually kind of were dipping their toes in the water in 1916 that, you know, they may not have been the main guys, but they were certainly, you know, that was where they were, if you want to use the term radicalised, like, you know, and, and then they went forward and, and, and kind of went from there. But um, yeah, like, I mean, I think like everybody, like I was big into, I funny, I was big into the Rising when I was a kid. Like yeah. when I was nine and ten years of age, I remember being taken to Kilmainham Jail and like I come from outside of Mallow. So, I mean, Thomas Davis would have been a thing. And there was a bit of Thomas Davis, I think, in Kilmainham Jail even at that time. Um, so but then it kind of, you know, you bought the proclamation and you read it. And all you knew, though, was kind of like this sort of, you know, you didn't you didn't think of the, the kind of the tactics or the strategy of the whole thing. You just looked at these guys, in, you know, besieged in the GPO. I remember watching Insurrection that's been repeated now. Yeah, it was yeah. repeated years ago as well. I remember watching at the time being sort of amazed at um, the, I suppose, the courage, really, whether I put the politics and all that stuff aside, like just the courage of these guys to kind of go through with their convictions and stuff like that. And then obviously when you get older, you sort of read into it more and maybe you get a more nuanced view. And certainly, you know, when you when you start reading up about different Dublin footballers and that, like, I mean, I think of the Bloody Sunday team, five of them fought in the rising out of the 21 the panel of 21 that were there. So, 
and that actually kind of equates pretty reasonably to the amount of GA players that would have been fighting in the rising relative to the total number of, of volunteers who were there. Yeah, you know? just just uh, how involved were the were GA members in in the rising in 1916? Well, on a Dublin, just based on Dublin, there was 52 clubs represented um, across across the city. Uh, I've heard like the numbers. I've I've a list at home that I counted. I may have miscounted it, but it was three hundred and eight. I've heard like three early three hundred, but we'll say over you know somewhere mm. between three hundred and three hundred and ten anyway. Mm. Um, GA members, and that's going from players to I mean you two signatories of the proclamation. Sean McDermott and Tom Clark were members of O'Toole's GA club. The man who printed the proc- the proclamation, <coughs> excuse me, was a, a, a Dublin GA member or member of a club. You'd all sorts of people like you know you W T Cosgrave, Sean T O'Kelly, they're all. GA club members Michael Collins obviously was big involved in London GA uh, you had a guy like Frank Burke who marked Michael Hogan later on in 1920 in Bloody Sunday won five All-Ireland medals in between hurling and football with Dublin uh, he was he came out of St Enda's uh, school um, Pat Patrick Pierce. he was a boarder there Pierce actually gave him his rifle and he was in he was in a volunteer uh, company that was known as Pierce's own Pierce was the captain uh, I think there was 37 of those guys uh, assembled on the Easter Monday morning. They'd assembled on the Sunday, obviously, and then the counter or the countermanding order and all the confusion, they reassembled again on the Easter Monday. But even the simplicity of this, just to talk about Frank Burke for a minute, Frank Burke and his buddy and, and all the other guys got trams down from Ratfarnham. So they got a tram through Terenure, down through Ratgars, probably through Ratmines, down into George Street. The first thing they saw of the rising, according to Frank Burke, was... Uh, the 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 Boland's Mills there, no Jacobs Factory. Pardon me, Jacobs Factory there, where the IT industry is now being being uh, sandbagged and and so on and so forth. They went down a bit further. They heard the shooting at the bottom of Dame Street coming from Dublin Castle, where the the attack was starting, mm. and the tram driver kind of stopped it at, at Bank of Ireland, basically there in College Green, and the lads headed for Liberty Hall, and then they went across the GPO. But the only way they could get into the GPO was through a side window. Because uh, that was that had already just began. I think there was a there was a charge of lancers very early on in the, in, on that day, and that I think it just happened or was just about to happen as the lads were diving in the window. So like it, it you know the idea of sort of getting public transport to a rebellion yeah. kind of gets you know it's yeah. so catch a tram to the to the rising catch right? a tram to the rising yeah like it's so normal and yet something so extraordinary at the end of it all that comes out of it you know yeah um not every revolutionary was or not every member of the rising was a ga member not every ga member was a nationalist but at the same time you're talking about a venn diagram there that wouldn't be particularly disparate i, w- I wouldn't know like i mean it's 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 an, again it's the nature of the rising and probably everything about it it's, everything has a little nuance to it like you know you can't say that the GA was were the Irish volunteers at play, but at the same time you can't say that there was there wasn't a lot of Irish volunteers involved in the GA. Like when the volunteers, just to rewind a couple of years, when the volunteers were founded, Luke O'Toole was GA's general secretary. He spoke at this famous meeting above in the rotunda, um, at the very first meeting of the volunteers. Um, the volunteers went to the GA subsequently and said, "Listen, can we, will you kind of basically partner up with us?" And the GA, holding on to this kind of apolitical. Um, public stance said, no, we're not going to publicly support you, but we won't stop you using the structure of the clubs, basically, to recruit. So you had situations where you had guys recruiting through the clubs unofficially, but no one was stopping them. You had the likes, again, of Tom Clark um, in Crow Park, actively recruiting at matches, kind of just wandering through the crowd or whatever it would be. Um, so there was, there was that connection. But by the same token, 
you had a huge number. I mean, we cannot underestimate the amount of GA men that went and fought in World War One either. I mean, to take an ex- like, if you want to go to the absolute extreme, the Falls Road, for example, the Falls Road at that time was dotted with GA clubs all the way up. Um, there was one particular one, St. Peter's. Uh, they lost 20 members. 20 members were killed. 13 of them were killed on the Somme. Crowley's GA club up the Falls Road, seven members killed. A guy called Bill Manning, who played an All-Ireland football final for Antrim in 1912, um, was killed. Um, there was, you know, uh, the likes of uh, James Rossiter from Wexford, played an All-Ireland final for Wexford in 1914, went to war, was killed. We- that Wexford team went on to win four in a row afterwards with their first great football. I mean, he was, he was a big part of that. John Fox from Clare, hurled for Clare, won an All-Ireland medal, went to war. And the thing was that the GA club sent these men away with, with, you know, clapping them on the back, going, best of luck, well done. Some of them had fundraisers for them. Some of them had parties to wish them well. John Fox would be an example of that. John Fox came back. The entire scenario had changed. He was, he was ostracised. Um, and that was the case for a lot of fellows who went away to fight. So, I mean, there was, there was, a, lot of, there was a lot of GA men out in Europe there was, a, there was a good portion of GA men, as we say, out of the 13 or 1,400 rebels, whatever, say 300-odd were GA men. And some of them were very big. Like, I mean, you had your Jim Nolan, GA President, JJ Walsh, chairman of the Cork County Board. Harry Boland was chairman of the Dublin County Board. And in fact, he was in jail the following year after and got re-elected to chairman of the Dublin County Board from jail. Um, you had Michael Collins, obviously, with his London GA connections. Um, so it was there. And indeed, after that, Luke O'Toole, the general secretary, took his family... The week after the rising, he took his family out and literally went to the hills. He went back to his home place in Wicklow, up in the Wicklow Mountains, for fear that, because everybody was getting arrested. It wasn't just the, the blatantly obvious people who were involved. They were, they were lifting people all over the place. It seems to me, the narrative of the rising being deeply unpopular with the common Dublin folk and Irish folk at that time is obviously well-worn at this stage. But the, the way you describe a lot of GA thinking at that time, I mean, I can't imagine that... Um, that so many GA people would necessarily, to fit this narrative, that so many people would be actually against what the rebels were doing. Well, it's kind of like, I mean... Like, like, surely, uh, like, there were were hordes of GA members at Dunleary with those people cheering the British soldiers off the boats, etc. No, no, I mean, no, absolutely not. But, I mean, at the same time, you know, as always, like, even now we can say that GA is a good, it's a good kind of microcosm of what's going on around, around us, you know? Um, the views that might be held and so on and so forth. And at that time, you had a leadership in the GA that was apolitical in public, but militant enough behind the scenes. You had an awful lot. I mean, the, the, IR, the IRB, you know, back in the 1890s, tried to infiltrate the leadership and make it more militant. That was, that was still going on in 1916. But your grassroots average Joe, who was playing hurling and football down the country, but the majority of Irish people were Redmondites. They were happy enough to wait for home rule and they felt that going to war, again, and war was kind of part, was like part of youth culture, you know? Your buddy was going, I'll go as well, you know? I, you know, I'm not making much money down here on a very bad plot of land, like, you know? I go and get some excitement in Europe, you know? It was kind of, that was, you know, we, got, we can't forget that aspect and that, you know, that, that's going to infiltrate the GA as well. It was after, I suppose, what happened to the leaders and, again, putting a lot of... A, you know, a lot of volunteers into a, a camp like Frongok, where you know, obviously Gaelic football was played a lot. Um, you know, again, that process of radicalisation ex- accelerates and suddenly you come back. The first volunteer gathering, we say, after the, the prisoners had been released was in Crow Park. Mm. Um, 
interestingly enough, though, going just going back to that point again about the GA and the GA's reaction. GA produced a statement after the rising, kind of distancing themselves from it. Again, reiterating that we are a sporting organisation. Bloody Sunday, similar, but they didn't release any statement at all. They didn't say anything. There were even the minutes of the Central Council meetings afterwards was nothing. There's a vote of condolence in Dublin County Board. That's it. So, like at all times, they're trying to maintain, no matter how flimsy it may appear to be this apolitical stance. And I think it was much more flimsy in 1920 than it was in 1916. I think in 1916 they were certainly taking a kind of a sit back, wait, see what happens sort of attitude, which they kind of, again, you know, going after 1920, it was all for the GA, it was all about, they sandpapered a lot of history, they airbrushed a lot of history regarding the rising and the War of Independence to position themselves in a place where they could be seen as sort of the as part of the spiritual guardianship of the nation, if you like, that we are more green than the green fields themselves and we always have been and we were a driving force in the rising, even though they were, but they weren't to the to the degree that the myth may be developed over the years. I think some of that sandpapering might have taken place <laughs> at a certain part of Croke Park there, uh, Michael. I've already stealed people for this, okay? So you can feel free to really <laughs> explode the myth here. You talked about this in your one of your Sunday Times pieces. Um, please confirm once and for all that Hill 16 yeah. did not indeed get its name because it was built from the rubble of the Yeah, GTO. and it's weird. You know, I was actually watching the coverage from the BBC before the first rugby game in 2007, 2007, mm-hmm. and uh, there it was, you know, on the BBC, Hill 16, the, from built from the rubble of Sackville yeah. Street. You yeah. know, it's it's, it's it, an extraordinarily durable myth. Yeah, and I've been one of those pub bores trying to tell people for a long time, <laughs> lads, it was Hill 60 for years, yeah, yeah. Hill 60. But, um, well, bore our listeners. I will bore them <laughs> explain, the con- explain the context. Just cling on for another 30 seconds. But um, yeah, like basically it was called Hill 60 after uh, a battle for a hill in Gallipoli that happened to feature, probably for the first time, a major contingent of Irish Irish soldiers. And it, it was ser- heavy losses. I think it was the Connacht Rangers, if, if my memory serves me right. But the, heavy losses. Um, so it was named Hill 60. Um, post-rising, post-independence, as I say, it's all part of this kind of re- slight realigning of history from the GA's point of view. They decide to call Hill 60 Hill 16. To the, to the point that when I, I, I think Paul Rose had it in his book, that it was even the Irish press um, called it Hill 60 in a report, a match report somewhere in the 30s, and the GA actually wrote to them looking for a clarification. It's, in fact, that's Hill 16. The, wow. myth, the myth then grows up that it was built, that Hill 16 itself was built from the rubble of the GPO, and of course the blood of the martyrs is there. I mean, another one that I heard over the weekend, I think, was that the O'Rahilly's car, the O'Rahilly, who was, who was one of the 1916 leaders, was, was, was buried in the rubble of 19, in, in Hill 16 itself, which, of course, is another, yeah. another myth. But, um, yeah, the Hill 16 um, myth kind of, kind of developed over time. Raymond Smith, the, Sunday, the famous Sunday Independent journalist of the 50s and 60s, um, finally appeared to concrete it once and for all because he met a veteran in a pub around the time of the 50th anniversary down Middle Abbey Street and they had a drink and your man was reminiscing about 1916 and then recalled being paid a few shillings per wheelbarrow for pushing the rubble up from the GPO Mm. to Crow Park. Mm. Now, the first thing that struck me when I read it was that's a long way to be pushing a wheelbarrow full of concrete and stuff like. Uh, The second thing that that struck me is that this is clearly complete bother that. But 
it, it, it that sort of was the official seal then. Mm. And for a year, like for years, it's been, you know, it's Hill 16. Yeah. Um, the Blood of the Martyrs and, of course, Bloody Sunday kind of amplified that again then, um, that the GA had, had shed blood for the cause and... Uh, you know, it deserved that particular place in the New Ireland, that sort of, as I say, that kind of spiritual guardianship of what the new free state is all about. It's, it's Catholic, it's green, and it's GA. You know? Yeah, and I just, I just find it so interesting that the that there are historical myths that are passed on and there, there well, there are, there are some that are more a lot more durable than others. And, you know, it's the old Liberty Valance line, you know, when the myth becomes... Mm. Fact print the whatever the whatever the hell that line is <laughs> when the legend becomes fact print the legend isn't that it? Yeah. But um, that did whatever however it came about whether it's Hill sixty or Hill sixteen, the GA p- repositioned it as Hill sixteen mm. for a reason. It, it, yeah, uh, you know so well, you know well, the the rubble is complete nonsense, but there's actually there's a kernel there that tells you a lot about the GA. It that's exactly it. Yeah, nineteen sixteen in lots of ways tells you exactly how pragmatic the GA are. Do not forget, like, the GA were negotiating with General Maxwell. General Maxwell, the man who ordered the killings of all the leaders. They were negotiating with him a couple of weeks later about getting more trains on, their, on, on the tracks to bring people to games because there was, obviously everything was tightened up with the, with the, with the war on. Uh, they were very pragmatic, like, you know. Um, same again. The idea of aligning yourself m- as much as is humanly possible to the rising and to the leaders and to what happened. Again, the War of Independence stuff as well. Um, it allowed them to position themselves as the preeminent sporting organisation in the country. No, they also had, they also had the numbers and they had the organisation to do it. But I mean, they got you know they got good grants to do up Crow Park. They did a lot of stuff um, as a result of realigning themselves in this way. And as you say, you know, when legend becomes fact, print the legend. But there was an awful lot of people who really wanted to believe this to be true. That's the other thing. Yeah. I mean, you look at even look at the names of the grounds. Look at the names of some clubs around the country. Liam Mellows in Galway. How many Podrick Pierce's? How many Pierce Parks are there around the place? Yeah. Like all this stuff. The is two club winners this year: Ballyboden St. Andes from Rathfarnham St. Andes, as yeah. you were mentioning in your article, and yeah. uh, Napierschik. Yeah, and Napierschik. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, it's it's sort of it was all part of it. It was a, you know we don't want to be too trite about it. It was it was a cool thing to do. You know, it was it was a it was something you wanted to be connected with. You know, post free state, certainly coming into the free state time, you certainly wanted to be seen. And post nineteen, basically post nineteen seventeen, nineteen eighteen, you wanted to as amplify and strengthen as much as possible your connection to the rising. You mentioned the earlier on the amount of Irish people, amount of GA members who went over and fought in the uh, first world war there as well. And Sean Warren is writing about that about that this week in the Irish Times because the GA's commemoration. Is they're actually going on the on April twenty fourth, which is the mm. actual centenary of Easter Monday, nineteen sixteen, because it ties in nicely with the league final. So they're going to do this big theatrical production after the game. I think it's after the games. Um, and Sean Moran says, well, actually, because a lot more GA members went to fight in World War One than in the Rising of the War of Independence together, he feels that the GA commemoration should reflect that in some way. Mm. The GA say, well, no. I mean, this is a, this is a standalone. It's a very important date. It's it's a sort of a standalone event. It's an interesting one because it's. Nothing's really stand. Everything's yeah. so interconnected at that time. It's it's hard to know what the GA maybe should do. It's hard to know what the GA should do, and it's hard to know how do you commemorate two distinct events that are connected, but like their viewpoints are are quite distinct. <laughs> Looking back now, they are. I mean, the thing to be fair to the GA, like the Ulster Council have been have been undergoing a or have or have 
started a process for the last couple of years of trying to chart every single GA member who f- who enlisted and fought in, the, in World War One. That's that's been ongoing. Igor Farrell is is very uh, involved in that, wasn't he? Did he start it or? Well, I think I think to be fair, I think the the big clap on the back for getting that going will be to Donald McAnallen up in the Ulster Council and yeah. Martin McAvinney was the Ulster Council President and I think between and Aegon O'Farrell of course being a history man I think he would yeah, have yeah, very yeah. much Sorry, been, that's it. Yeah, been, yeah. Been, been pushing it as well um, but uh, like they reckon I mean it's it's, it's a while since I, I, I explored this now but I think they're talking about they're probably going to find a few good few hundred uh, GA members in Ulster alone that enlisted spread that out to the rest of the country you're talking thousands mm. so like um, I, I take Sean's point. It's a very interesting one. I kind of think the GA, like, I mean, if you start trying to commemorate everything in one go and trying to re- reflect every single aspect of a, of, of a conflict or whatever, you're going to get, everything gets muddied. I think I can see where the GA are coming from, just we're going to focus on, on the rising. It will be very interesting in 1918, or no, well, in 2018. Yeah. Can't go back to see what, the, <laughs> no, 2018 to see what they'll do, uh, maybe at the end of the uh, centenary, the end of the war. Will they do something to mark the GA members uh, who fought and died in that particular war? I would hope, I would love to hope and think that um, GA clubs and stuff like that will look back and look at people who fought in the war that were part of their clubs and may may think about down the line now doing something just to mark that fact that, you know, however many lads from their club fought and died in World War One or fought and survived and came home. As I said before, a lot of them were ostracised and sort of had to keep their heads down when they came home, that maybe their memory can be reclaimed on behalf of their families. And, you know, because it's still a lot. You know, I talk to people uh, who are involved in genealogy and stuff like that and kind of, you know, tracing back through through various different family histories and maybe looking into people who might have been involved with the RIC or the Dublin Metropolitan Police or the Army who might have Irish roots back in back in the revolutionary period and people are still very cautious on the phone when they ring these people like I, I know that you know something can you help me out I'm not no less than the family knows that I'm doing this but you know so there's still that process is ongoing of kind of uh, it's what normalizing it to say it's okay like there was this is this was a multifaceted conflict and you know, people went to war, people fought in the Rising for all sorts of different reasons and, you know, they all deserve commemoration in some way, shape or form. Yeah, Michael, enjoy the weekend. Great to have you in the studio. Thanks, no problem, guys. Thanks a million. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen unanswered punches. Fifteen of them really hurt. All the Irish... Everyone in the house are hurting. I heard all your cheers. And he got me through that fight. Matt Carball was giving me a nightmare. And I found it really hard in there. But anyway, listen. I'm a midway fighter. I'm a champion now. I want to defend my belt in Ireland. And I'll fight the best in the world. Congratulations, Andy. Up the Irish. Get in. Right, left hand. Oh. By TKO victory, and now the WBO middleweight champion of the world, Irish Andy Lee. So, quite a significant faction of big GA men involved in the Rising Murphy's. 
not a huge leap to imagine the physical prowess shown on the sports fields to be transferred to mm. the battlefront, if that's what you would call it. What you yeah, would call a, it a little, a little harder though. I mean, I have to say, I was in the, uh, I was in the Abbey on Saturday night, right? Mm. And they have, uh, you know, a series of sort of uh, signs up, you know, like a sort of, you know, history of the Abbey and the Rising and all the rest, you know. And it's, it's unbelievable how many Abbey Theatre, you know, stage actors, hands, stage hands, uh, you know, set designers. They were all, they all like skived off work, basically, missed the matinee to take part in a Rising. I mean, it's 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 as you say, very easy to draw a line between right the uh, the uh, physically well endowed, you know, the the uh, the physical gifts required to play Gaelic football and hurling. I'm saying definitely in the teens of the 20th century would would have come in handy in that er- arena and also in the arena of you know close arm hand to hand combat. It's a bit of another borrowing from the old uh, cross channel. Or- Cross Channel Cousins, though, isn't it? What has that? The whole sense of sport as being a preparation yeah. for battle. You know, the Battle of Waterloo was one in the playing fields of Eton, all this kind of stuff. I mean... Completely, yeah. I mean, just, that, we're literally just reiterating everything. That, that tired old stereotype, I suppose. But, I mean, it is quite odd to see the extent to, to which we're talking about playwrights and poets at the heart of this rising. Uh, so you can kind of big up the GAs, uh uh, contribution to it, but actually the Abbey Theatre's contribution to it is even more vital, even more in, uh, integral to the whole scene. Mm. Sounds like you won't be attending many of the rising commemoration events over the Easter weekend, are you? No, I will absolutely go along to oh. it. I just, I just don't understand what people's fascination is with violence and why they think it works, even though it obviously doesn't. I wonder how many people. I thought this was. I th- actually thought that the whole uh, build-up to it was. Uh, very care well, not very carefully. I mean, obviously there there will be parts to it, but I I haven't seen a massive glorification. Yeah, it's, it's I don't think it's all triumphal triumphalist yeah, nationalism. If that's what you've I, taken from it, then fair yeah. enough. But I mean, no, I have- not really. Just I mean, for instance, there was the, I don't know if you saw any of the prime time thing that was on last night. Um, there was kind of they had a very sort of debate, but mainly I, I only know I didn't see it on at the time. I kind of flicked it on the plus one. You know, I was like, mm. oh, what was that? And uh, because I mainly just saw this kind of outrage on Twitter, you know, and it was all really, it was mainly from the kind of pro-rebel side, let's say, you know, how dare you, you know, there was, there was a, a lot of anger about, you know, you're disrespecting the, the men and women of 1916, who, by the way, disrespected everybody in the country, you know, to, to take the country down a path of violence, which it didn't really want to go down. They were the ones who made that decision on everybody else's behalf. I don't really understand why they're lying us to that. I wonder how Martin Luther King would be remembered now if his if instead of saying we are going to use nonviolent means of protest, we are going to use, you know, nonviolent resistance. If instead of doing that he had organized or helped to organize a thing whereby they captured a number of key buildings in Birmingham, Alabama, and had a shootout with the army. I wonder how that would have played he, out. If he'd been executed by the US government. I wonder how it would have played out. I mean, I, I, I don't know. That's, the, that's the, the question. I mean, it's not... I mean, whatever about Hill, the Hill 16 myth, I mean, it's the most overused trope of it all is the idea of the Dublin people, the people, the plain people of Dublin, uh, you know, booing them and throwing rotten vegetables at the rebels as they left, as they were marched through in humiliation. I mean, right. that's like... Well, who do the, these people think they were? That's the, well, I mean, no, well, hang on a second, can you? But that, like, that's the most told story 
around 1916, I would near enough of them all. And yet we got to a position where within three years, this country that resolutely didn't want to fight for Ireland did fight for Ireland. I you mean, know, fight for Ireland. Well, there was a war of independence that uh, that w- and we brought uh, the British Empire to a situation where they signed a treaty with us. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you could say that the country didn't want to fight, but at the end of the at the end of the day, three years later, they did fight. So, the the, the country didn't want to fight. Who, who was doing the fighting? It's a tiny number of people. But in the war, of most people are keeping their heads down. But in the war of independence, yeah, a tiny number of people. I, I, well, I don't know about a tiny number of people, but I, I would be... The, well, take, in, take into account the general election of 1919, then, where the Sinn Féin were voted in. You know, I mean, I, you can keep going all... Like, maybe there was a tiny minority of the electorate that voted for, uh, in that election, but the fact of the matter was mm. that they won in a landslide. So, I mean, they, whether the 1916 acted in, you know, the name of the country or not, you I don't up. know, but, it, but by the time the War of Independence came mm. around, they had gotten an electoral... An, an electoral uh, mandate. There had been a long tradition of uh, uh, the Irish. The Irish independence tradition had never been before that. Had never been a sectarian. Uh, had never been a sectarian movement. It had, it had included Protestants and Catholics, um, because that's what Ireland is. It's a country of mm-hmm. both. And uh, after this, 1916 was really the, the decisive turning point when it actually became a kind of Catholic-only movement. And that's when you got this, this splitting of the country into two, into sectarian camps, separate sectarian camps. That's the long-term legacy of it, where you had one uh, country, now you've actually got two. And I, I don't really see how it can ever be uh, be put back together again. Well, yeah, but, you ha- but, but I, you know, I, but I don't, I don't see how it would have ever broken any other way than how it broke, because you're dealing with it like a majority of the population. If people could have resisted, counties. people could have resisted the urge to shoot at each other. You'd be surprised how, how things could have worked out. Dave Hannigan. Yeah. 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 Sorry, there's any way of, of, of uh, you know, Res- that. resolving, or resolving this indeed. one way or the other for the time being. Dave Hannigan, who writes, of course, the Brilliant America at Large, column in the Irish Times, joins us today to talk about the, I mentioned the baseball game attended by Barack Obama in Cuba, um, the first time an American president had visited Cuba since the 1920s. Now, this would have all been fine and was part of this sort of flashy PR drive, this big political event for, for the countries. The fact, though, it became a problem, obviously, when the Brussels attacks uh, happened earlier that day, uh, creating a scenario whereby Obama is doing the, a Mexican wave with Raul Castro while the rest of, many of the rest of the world's leaders are talking about how they defend uh, Western values. It, it did. Um, the, the problem here is, I mean, you, you can go one of two ways. You can say, you know, to use this terrible phrase, the American president is the leader of the free world at a time like this. Um, he should be seen to be doing something uh, substantial and taking the threat of ISIS and terrorism more seriously than, you know, yucking it up at a baseball game. Alternatively, you know, after 9-11, the big uh, narrative from Rudy Giuliani and, and from Washington was Americans must go on with their daily lives and show the, ter- the terrorists that we will not be intimidated, we will not be bullied, we will continue to live and happy lives. Now, the, the one thing I will say about Obama here is he doesn't have great political instincts in this regard because he has previous. He has previous for this sort of thing. Uh, I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, James Foley, an American, was beheaded yeah. by ISIS, and the video was released on YouTube, uh, etc. You know, 
truly horrific, nightmarish stuff. And Obama, I think, was on Martha's Vineyard at the time on, on his vacation, and he gave a brief press, uh, you know, press moment, like literally a minute or two to the press, that was the press corps that was traveling with him. And then he went playing golf. And even afterwards, he actually admitted that that didn't look great, and he realized now that that was not, you know, that was not what the American people needed to see from their president at a time like that. So that's, you know, this, this Cuban incident on Tuesday did not happen, or this baseball incident, if you want to call it that, did not happen in isolation. Yeah, it's a funny one as well. In, in this particular case, it might have been seen as okay if he was just locked away in talks or attending something less trivial looking than a baseball game. If, if he's there, maybe with Castro at a state function, uh, it's fine. But the fact that it just looks, it looks so inconsequential, even though, as you explained, uh, the, the baseball, you know, it's, it's a perfectly natural event for him to be at in the context of what the trip was about. It is. And, you know, again, just to give you some history on it, George, George Bush, um, in 2002, George Bush gave an infamous... Uh, interview, photo opportunity, whatever you want to call it. Uh, things were really bad in Israel at that time. And this particular, I think it was a Sunday morning, there was just some atrocity uh, between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And uh, Bush was caroused by the media uh, on a Sunday morning just before he went playing golf. And it was actually on the golf course, now that I think of it. And Bush uh, infamously said, you know, delivered remarks condemning what had happened in Israel and then said to the press, and it became a cliche afterwards, now watch this drive. Yeah. And, it, you know, it was a terrible, and not long after that, Bush gave up golf completely. Uh, Bush gave up golf completely because, you know, he was hammered, and right, rightfully so, he was hammered for how bad that looked and how awful that sounded. And ESPN showed this game live the other day, and you had Obama at a time when, you know, the news channels were full of these terrible images from Brussels and, you know, these apocalyptic reports of what next will happen and, you know, et cetera. And then Obama was discussing the difficulties of throwing out the ceremonial first pitch at a baseball game. It just, you know, it jars with people, it, you know, it jars with people and not just uh, Republicans. I think Tom Brokaw, who's the doyen of news journalists here, the you know journalist emeritus of America, uh, he came out the other day and said this just was you know bad, bad handling, poor decision making for him to do this at that time. Amber Jameson uh, wrote this is how we became aware of it. Wrote an article in the Guardian, and she makes a point that the White House tried to anticipate this problem, so they released a photo on Tuesday morning of she says the president at his most intense, the furrowed brow clenched fist in front of his face and downward stare studying gravitas. So he's on the phone here clearly in uh, in crisis mode and sitting next to him is Susan Rice his national security advisor. As Jameson says, uh, the thick folder of briefing papers in her hand underscores the difficulty and complication of the crisis as does the White House's note that the president was hearing from his homeland security advisor Lisa Monaco. So there seemed to be a, a, a very, uh, it's one of those interest. I suppose for anyone who's watched the West Wing or any political program uh, House of Cards in more recent times maybe, it's one of those situations that you can sort of you can really see the um, the PR at work in, in the in the sense that they knew this was going to look bad in advance, went ahead with it, and maybe tried to limit any damage. 
it, it, you know, and it shows he has this tendency, I think, if you watch him closely, he sticks to his narrative, whatever it is. You know, he right. does not like to deviate from the script. And I mean, this, this Cuban thing, this, was a, this is a big part of his, of, of his presidency. This is part of the legacy he wants to leave, the normalization of, of relations with Cuba. And, and I mean, that's a separate argument to what we're discussing. Dan Lebetard, Dan the ESPN commentator and journalist out of Miami, has written a, a fantastic piece questioning the entire wisdom of the whole enterprise because Dan Lebetard's parents are Cuban refugees and his uncles and uh, his uncle and his grandfather I think were political prisoners in Cuba so that's a separate thing it's just this that that he can't deviate from what he wanted you know he wanted this to be about this and then it was interrupted by that and the other the other problem as well and I don't want to sound like a republican mouthpiece here but he the, the, the prevailing view of his critics is he doesn't take ISIS seriously, and he has really you know, bad timing when it comes to ISIS. Before the Paris attacks, the day of the Paris attacks, he said ISIS was now more or less contained. And that was on the Friday when ISIS lit up Paris and the Stade de France and the Bataclan, etc. And, you know, earlier, was it last year, he said ISIS was the JV team. The JV team is American for, for the junior team, basically. They were the junior team of terrorists. So that all feeds into this whole idea that, you know, that he's not taking this seriously enough and he doesn't react with the gravitas that, you, that he should react with. And your point, and the point made in The Guardian about this ridiculous staged phone call. I mean, this even shows that they anticipated this being a problem, yet still went ahead with it because there was a certain pig-headedness to, to the regime. You know, there's a certain stubbornness uh, to, to him and his handlers about this kind of thing when a, a better, you know, a politician with better instincts, a Bill Clinton, for instance, would never be caught doing something as, as gauche as that. Is there too much being made out of it, though, Dave? I mean, obviously, Trump and Ted Cruz predictably... Um, got on the high horse and practically ordered Obama home to defend his country rather than being out at a baseball game. But is it a bit of a storm in a teacup, really? It, everything is there. Everything is made of too much. Is made of everything on these days. Unfortunately, this is the world that we live in. But let me, you know, let me just put that in context to, um, you know, Donald Trump is. I'm criticizing Obama here and, and lots of other people in America, but so is Donald Trump. And let's remember, Donald Trump's foreign policy, his, his plan for dealing with ISIS is he's going to bomb the shit out of them. Now, that obviously presupposes ISIS are all in a room somewhere in Syria waiting to be bombed, which even anybody, anybody who's been paying attention to the news for the last couple of years will know that that is the exact opposite of the case. So, I mean, the sim- simpleton that is Trump coming out and deriding Obama for anything, you know, sums up your argument, or I think backs up your argument, that yes, too much is being made out of it and political capital is being made out of it. But that still does not, you know, detract from the fact, I think, that it was, um, it showed a poor political instincts on his, on his behalf. Dave Hannigan, good to talk to you as always. Thanks a million. Cheers, guys. What do you boys think? Agree that it was a bad move by Obama to go ahead and go to baseball? Uh, go, to, go to the baseball, I should say? Yeah. Maybe. See, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of interesting, really. I mean, Maybe there's a, maybe there's a way of of uh, downplaying this, but at the same time, I don't know what how he can stop governing. How he, I mean, the U.S. Cuba relationship is a pretty big deal for the U.S. I mean, it's their closest. It's one of the three countries closest to the landmass that is the United States. So, I mean, I I, I don't want to start drawing 
you know, uh, uh, compar- which is more important, you know, the, the loss of innocent lives in Brussels or uh, reopening of a relationship that's been sour for 70 years. I mean, I don't know how you go about squaring that circle. But at the same time, one is, it's not like he went to a baseball game in Washington, in Washington, D.C. He went to a baseball game in Cuba and baseball, as Dave was saying, is one of the few things that the two co- uh, countries actually have in common. And it's a way of demonstrating a common cause between the two countries. I mean, I don't think that it was a utterly empty gesture. He wouldn't have been doing it if it wasn't an, uh, if it was an utterly empty gesture to just go to a baseball game. I mean, optics. I mean, you can you can get pretty tied up on uh, on optics and how things look. At the end of the day, he had a he was there for a reason, and that's that that's what it well, is. Yeah, I as mean, I said during the if he had been. If he had been photographed and filmed at some solemn state ceremony, nobody would have batted an eyelid. Uh, and I think maybe it underestimates people might underestimate how important baseball is in Cuba and how big a part of the trip that was. So mm. either you're objecting to him being in Cuba at all, or you're accepting that if he's going to be there, this baseball this baseball match is is a part of it. He, he maybe maybe he suffers from being too damn relaxed in the public glare. Obama, he's just as I was saying, he's just strutting around, no tie, no jacket, casual white shirt, chatting away with everyone, having a great time, and being a little bit too happy maybe on a day when it might have paid to look a little bit more somber. But whatever about Obama, UEFA has faced a big challenge on how to uh, been faced with a big challenge on how to deal with the aftermath of the Brussels attacks and the heightened fears around Euro 2016. But amazed how many people have said to me in the last few days, "Oh my God, you hear there's going to be matches played behind closed doors in yeah. the in Euro 2016." Now that comes from uh, a gentleman called Giancarlo Abete, who's a UEFA Executive Committee Vice President. We can't exclude the possibility of playing behind closed doors, as we cannot exclude terrorism, is what he said. UEFA then came out and said, "Well, actually, we're confident this is an official UEFA statement." We're confident that all security measures will be in place for a safe and festive Euros and there are no plans to play matches behind closed doors. However, we are working contingency plans and multiple scenarios around crisis situations. What I found intriguing about this was that this, of course, there could be matches played behind closed doors. I mean, it's kind of obvious for a start. I would have thought that with such safety concerns around that if you can't guarantee the safety of a stadium, one of the options aside from moving to another stadium, which might not be feasible, is actually going ahead with that match with no fans. As horrible as that might sound to supporters, uh, and you can only imagine if people travel over for Ireland versus Belgium and it ends up taking place behind closed doors, that's a pretty bad scene, but it's better than the worst-case scenario. And indeed, UEFA have already said, or not UEFA, the tournament um, director, Martin Collins, already said this could happen. Emmett Malone wrote a piece from Paris. Do you remember there was this press conference when there's 100 days to go and they had all the security chiefs lined up who, who were chatting away about what the... What the um, what the plans were going to be. You always have a plan B, not only for security. This is Martin Callan, tournament director for the Euros. You always have a plan B, not only for security. You can have a storm that doesn't allow you to play a match. The tournament is 51 matches in four weeks and you have to play the games. If a match can't be played for whatever reason, it needs to be played ASAP. You can't wait two or three days because the match schedule won't be working. So we need in principle to play the next day. And the question then is, can you play in the stadium? If not, you might have to play that match in another stadium. Then it depends where that is and how that's prepared. Then you have to consider how you might do the ticketing because the spectators who have tickets for the match in question wouldn't have enough time to organise travel in a hotel room. And it could be that the match will be behind closed doors because you need to play it and you're not able to organise everything beforehand. Yeah, well, uh, I don't see how UEFA can can say at this stage that, that they're not going to play matches behind closed doors. You know, you can't uh, guarantee that. No, 
but they're trying. It's. I was, I was almost surprised that they clarified. No, 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 that's not going to happen. When the, the obvious, they, uh, they don't want it to happen. They don't want to have course. to admit it at this stage. But yeah. they know, they know uh, for sure that that's a possibility, mm. and they don't know. They don't know what's going to happen between now and then. They don't want to create a situation where you know the situation more or less that you described. Oh, I can't believe people are going around going. Oh, I can't believe we're playing matches behind closed doors. Oh, that's terrible. You know, they don't want to necessarily fan the flames of this thing. But that's absolutely going to be... That's the, that's the reality that they're dealing with. Here. And it is terrible, uh, but it, it's a lot less terrible than the, the really terrible vista of something actually happening at a stadium. I, I, you can imagine if it was to happen, there would almost certainly be uh, an outcry that, that we're, uh, we as in the you know normal people, are, uh, uh, people who aren't terrorists, are allowing the terrorists to win. Yeah. They're allowing the terrorists to win. That We're shutting down the stadium, but Equally, if like, these are real threats, these are real threats that we've seen implemented in recent times. I think if it comes to it, uh, we're just going to have to. Football fans are just going to have to accept. I mean, they called off the Grand National one year, didn't they? You know, these things sometimes happen. Yeah. Um, uh, and there's no way that UEFA at this stage can say with confidence that that there won't be matches played behind closed doors, or, or in fact that their entire tournament is is going to uh, be completed as planned. They can't say that. They don't know that for sure. Heavy old show. Heavy, heavy times we're living in. <laughs> Murph, uh, do you want to give us something light to end It's with? funny how sometimes it's a lot more obvious to see why, you know, visiting surprise violence on a community is oh, a bad right. thing than in, than in other cases. Sometimes we can see a lot more clearly how violence, you know, out of the blue and sprung on a city by surprise is a really bad idea. Anyway, Ken, uh, it's a big week for uh, Connacht Sport. Uh, uh, for too long we've been ignored on but uh, this weekend we sweep centre stage because there's uh, Leinster Connacht and at uh, 5.15 on Saturday in the sports ground especially uh, in large sports ground uh, 7,300 uh, seats t- well tickets uh, uh, all sold out I think last week uh, the uh, league's top scorers against the league's meanest defence and that's not the way you would automatically presume that to be, uh, given the last 20 years or so. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's on Sky. Nigel Owens is the ref. So you know it's a big game. Uh, and I like, there's actually only five games left in this league. So uh, if Connacht win this, well, I mean, it's going to go a long way to deciding uh, top two and home advantage for the semi final. So it is a genuinely huge game. I saw Turn O'Halloran speaking in the uh, Irish Times today as well. Um, about how this is the biggest interpro that he's ever played in. I don't think any Connacht player uh, has experienced anything quite like this. But um, yeah, it should be great. And then on Sunday we have the Rossies against Mayo. Uh, and uh, say what you like will about march on, yeah. Yeah, well, say what you like about uh, pulling punches in the league. Um, and you know there will be an element, I think, of uh, of games of uh, uh, shadow boxing going on here. But uh, the Rossies probably only need a point to get through to the semi-finals. Uh, six, yeah, they're, they're not going to get through to the semi-final on six points, but uh, if they were to win, and it is in a reopened Dr. Hyde Park, um, if they were to win, they're pretty much assured of a semi-final place and also condemn Mayo to relegation. So all in all, uh, pretty pretty big couple of days. Have I asked you yet what's on in the Irish Times Second Captain's Football podcast? I don't think I have. I'm going to ask you now, Ken. What's coming up in the Irish Times Second Captain's Football podcast? That's, yeah, <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. 
I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. Well, on today, uh, Johan Cruyff has died. We're going to talk to David Werner about the contribution of Johan Cruyff to football. We're also going to talk to Richard Sadler, who was in studio a little earlier, to, uh, well, he was talking mainly about Ireland and what's what's likely to be going on in the squad at this stage, Jack Byrne and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Okay, we're broadcasting, just to remind you, we're broadcasting a week of shows. This was the big announcement earlier on in New York from April the 11th. It's going to be a live show in the Brass Monkey Bar and the Meatpackers in Manhattan on Wednesday, April 13th. So if you and your friends want to come to that live show in your city, email my favourite email address that we've ever had, New York at secondcaptains.com with your name, the number of tickets you're looking for, and we'll immediately put you in the draw for the tickets. That's just about it. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Kenny. Thanks thank so you, Karen. Kenny. Thank you, Owen. Uh, thank you. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.